Good morning. Uh, my name is Tim Yohoff. I am a professor of communication at Biola University and the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. And Darren and I periodically have breakfast together. This is our home church for me and my wife. And I mentioned to him that I actually liked the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's a thought experiment I have my students do every year. And when Darren heard about the thought experiment, he said, hey, you need to present that to the church and encourage them to do uh, this thought experiment. So that's what I want to do, is present to you how the book of Ecclesiastes helps us in our walk with God and appreciating God. But first, before we get there, can you think of a Christian thinker, an author, a book that just resonated with you? You read it and you thought, boy, that person's speaking my language. They have really articulated how I feel as a Christian moving through this life. If you're taking notes in your journal, go ahead and write down who that author may be or that book. Just go ahead and take a second and do that. By the way, Mulehoff is spelled M U E H. Mine is C.S. Lewis. I've always resonated with Lewis. I've read most of his works. I just took a correspondence course on teaching C.S. Lewis, which was fascinating. I love the screw tape letters. Uh, it was the hardest book for Lewis to write. The screw tape letters is Lewis very creatively thinking, how do demons plot against us? And what would that communication sound like if you had a senior devil that was discipling a junior devil and they were talking about the best ways to tempt Christians? So here is a great passage early in the screw tape letters. As long as he lives on earth, a Christian, he will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless you make good use of it. Interesting observation of Lewis via a demon that life in a fallen world, you're always going to alternate between having periods of joy, contentment, peace, but that will always dip into times of dryness and dullness. He called it the principle of undulation, which means like a wave comes up and then it comes down and it comes back up. Lewis believed that in a fallen world, even if you're a follower of Jesus, this would be true of every human experience that we have. For example, I always dreamed of being a professor. And I'll never forget walking into my very first class. It wasn't at Biola University. It's while I was doing grad work at UNC Chapel Hill. PhD students teach while you're getting your degree. I'll never forget walking into that classroom with 30 students. And I got to tell you, I really imagined halfway through my first lecture, like Dead Poets Society, students would step up on their desk and say, Captain, my captain. Uh, at the end of a lecture, they would wave their phones in the back, going, no, one more illustration, one more illustration. And it was electric. The first time I taught a class, I knew this is what I wanted to do. I knew this was it. And I'm going on my 19th year at Biola University, and guess what? I still love being a professor. But now I have really periods of dryness. I, I mean, I still love it, but, but there are certain days where I have to go and teach a three-hour block class, and I am just like, ah. Oh. 
Now I'm going to have to go in and lie to my students one more time. And you think, what, what do you mean lie? Well, here's one of the lies professors do. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> that is not a great question. What have you been listening to for the last hour that you would ask that question? You know what I mean? And my other one is my favorite one is I'm pouring my heart out, pouring my heart out. And the student said, so this, how would this be on the test? I said, oh, it's not. I'm just killing time. We're good. You're the. So I love teaching. I love marriage. I love being a parent. I love being part of this church. But the principle of undulation means you go up and down. And Lewis said, expect it. Those periods of dryness will be primed for spiritual attack. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, I, I experienced that. Others of you are saying, I've been in that dry part for not days or weeks. I've been in that dry part for years. This is what St. John of the Cross calls a dark night of the soul. Is, is God doesn't seem present. He doesn't seem to answer prayer. He knows what's going on in my life. And it doesn't feel like he intervenes. And I feel like life has become overwhelming in many different ways. And by the way, the, the psalmists give language to this. The psalmists aren't afraid to speak this kind of language, nor are they ever rebuked by God for speaking this kind of language. Uh, when Lewis lost his wife, Joy, he believed she'd been healed from cancer. Uh, and in fact, she did go into remission, but came out very quickly and died. He was never the same. This class that I just uh, sat in on, uh, they said that he never publicly defended his faith after the death of his wife. He was in a dry period. So how do we use the book of Ecclesiastes not to deny this dry period, but to use it to help us get out of the dry period, to reappreciate our faith? Now, to do that, we're going to have to lay some groundwork, okay? Uh, Darren and I have had many breakfasts. I, I so appreciate Darren um, and Jeff. I mean, Ecclesiastes is a hard book to preach, it's just really hard. And to be honest, you don't want chapter 11. You want chapter 12. Like you really want not the next to last chapter. You want chapter 12. But I want to set up the book of Ecclesiastes in a certain way. And then we're going to uh, do our thought experiment if you want to do it. Next slide. Now, because I'm a communication professor, the cool thing about the book of Ecclesiastes is a rhetorical document. He has a very specific purpose for the book of Ecclesiastes and how he's writing it. At the very end of Ecclesiastes, where we normally would say it in the beginning, he says it in the very end. Let me tell you exactly what I've been doing all of these chapters. Here we go. Uh, this is chapter 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. So within the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, he's dropping really helpful knowledge all along the way. Even though we're under the sun, he's still dropping knowledge everywhere. And he says, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. That is present throughout the entire book of, of Ecclesiastes. Our job is to kind of find it as he's hidden these gems throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Then notice 11, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, Yahweh, the shepherd of Israel. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Here's his thesis statement. 
fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Now, what's a goad? A goad is what a shepherd would do. He would take a stick and he would put this pointed piece of metal on the end of the stick. So when sheep were going in a direction he did not want them to go, he'd give them a little uh, hit with the goad saying, hey, I want to get your attention. You need to go this way. That's what a literal goad is. Now, obviously, the writer isn't using a literal goad. He's using a rhetorical goad. He's going to phrase things in a certain way that he's going to want you to move in a different direction. Now, to do that, he adopts three different perspectives. These perspectives are found within um, the entire book of Ecclesiastes. He pops in and out of them. He doesn't announce that he's doing it, but he jumps in and out with these three different perspectives. Here they are. Very first perspective is under the sun. Now, without a doubt, that is the dominant goad. The dominant rhetorical strategy he adopts is under the sun. He mentions it 38 times. It means life without God. It doesn't mean the writer no longer believes in God. He's simply saying, let's imagine life without God. Uh, I did my first YouTube uh, debate with an atheist who approached me and said, let's do this. Uh, live in front of everybody. And I thought, what a great idea. I made it part of one of my classes. We actually did the live debate during one of my classes. Uh, And so I said to him, Tom, let's go with your perspective. You don't believe there's a God. You don't believe in absolute truth. You don't believe in absolute morality. Let's live in that perspective for a little bit. I never stopped believing in God. I just adopted Tom's perspective to point out certain things within his perspective. That is exactly what the writer does. He never stops believing in God, but he says, but let's imagine life under the sun in which there is no God. There is no prayer. There's no transcendence. There's nothing. And let's see what life is like under the sun. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Even under the sun, and I think this is God's graciousness, he says, but even under the sun, I'm going to give you advice, right? I can't get you out of the sun, but I'm going to give you advice of how to live in a fallen world. And this will make life better. It can never fully resolve things because we live in a fallen world. We'll call this the pragmatic perspective. Okay, so let's take a look at that. Right? The pragmatic perspective is this. Uh, In chapter 4, you get a really clear expression of this. Right? He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Uh, Every year I read a book on happiness. Happiness is a huge academic topic today. It is studied um, by UCLA. It's studied by Biola. It's studied by Christians and non-Christians. And every year I make it a discipline to read a book on happiness. I just finished one called The Good Life. It is the longest study on happiness ever done in the United States. It was started before the Great Depression, started by Harvard. Harvard, and they have published their findings in a popular way, and it's called The Good Life. In it, they say this, happiness is not your bank account. It's not your bank account. If you have, this is so interesting, $75,000, your happiness does not greatly increase after $75,000. By the way, parenthetical comment, let the Mielhoffs be the test case. You know what? 
give me $275,000. And as we're in Cabo, we'll say, you know, you're right. I'm not greatly happier, but sorry, I have a yoga lesson. You know what I mean? So after 75000 now below $75,000, it can really cause unhappiness because you can't meet needs. Make sense? But we have this weird thought in the United States. The more money I get, the happier uh, we are. Harvard is saying that just blatantly isn't true. And we've interviewed tens of thousands of people. Second, marriage won't make you happy. Not by itself. Because you're expecting your marriage to do only what a community can do. At the end of the day, Harvard says, if you want to be happy, belong to a community. Belong to a community of people because they will pick you up in the hard times. You're expecting your marriage to do what only a community can do, and that's putting too much pressure on marriage. Fascinating book. Listen, the writer of Ecclesiastes didn't know about the Harvard study, but he absolutely nails it. He says, listen, a cord of three strands will help you under the sun Uh, Don't try to go alone. There's huge benefits. Make sense? The first perspective is below the sun. The second one is even below the sun, there's some things we can do. Then here's the whole purpose of Ecclesiastes. But I want you to go above the sun. I want you to think above the sun. He doesn't use that phrase, but it is a way of thinking, what if there was a God? Let's take a look at that perspective real quick. Uh, From chapter two, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So the writer is saying, above the sun, everything is a gift from God. Everything. So enjoying a good meal, enjoying company, that is all gifts from God, and you need to Uh, give thanks to the one good shepherd of Israel who's providing you all these things. By the way, another thing from the Good Life study is they said, if you do one practice, you will greatly increase your happiness. Here's the practice. It's so simple. We almost hit ourselves to think about it. Every day for the next week, just write down three things you're grateful for. Every day, write down three things that you're thankful for. Uh, My wife's been gone for five days. She comes back today. Matter of fact, I think she is uh, just landing in a couple minutes. I've been away from her for five days. And the first day is awesome. I got the remote control. I'm ordering takeout, even though Noreen said, honey, don't order takeout every day. Okay, not every day, but today for sure. Right? All that kind of stuff. And then you just really miss her. You just really miss her. And I remember when the kids were young, Noreen would go away. I have three boys. When they would go away, I'd be alone with the three meal hot boys. It was insanity. Like my one child is really verbal. My middle child, he'd be like, dad, dad, how much does hair weigh? Dad, why do police officers have locks on their locker? Stop. Are you hurt right now? No. Then go away. I made egos all day. Egos can be any meal depending on the topping. That's my argument, right? So when Noreen came home after being away for like three, four days, I hugged that woman and said, don't leave me. I can change, right? You know what I mean? (laughs) So all they're saying from Harvard is for the next week, write down three things you kind of take for granted, 
but you write them down and give appreciation for them. For sure, that can be our church, family members, my job, uh, the fact that I, get, I have summers where I don't teach, so I have some time to think and write. Um, I have three boys who are awesome. Uh, things I take for granted, I purposely don't take for granted. They have said it will change your brain structure for the next six months if you do it just for a week. This comes from Sean Aker, The Happiness Advantage. That's Book of Ecclesiastes right there. Hey, get above the sun and don't take things for granted. They're all a gift from God. Okay, with that in place, let's get to chapter 11. Because chapter 11, we're going to see all three of these perspectives play out in chapter 11. Okay, so next slide. <clears throat> Take a look at under the sun, right? If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he regards the clouds will not reap. Two things he says right away. Hey, agriculture, sorry, it's kind of a crapshoot. Like we know a ton more about agriculture today. Back then, it's like, well, what, what, what should I do? What should I plant? What, what's the weather patterns going to be like? And he's saying, hey, under the sun, no God, it, plant. I mean, I can't even really tell you what to do. It's a little bit of a crapshoot. Then he says, hey, if a tree falls to the north, but you wanted it to fall to the south, bummer. Uh, when we were in North Carolina, we got hit with Hurricane Fran, a, a, a legit hurricane. And we had trees in our backyard, and there was a really big one. It had rain for a long time, so the root system was weak. And we're watching this tree teeter, and if it would have fell on the house, we would have had to have gone out of the house and evacuate. Now, two doors down, a neighbor got hit by three trees, and they had to evacuate. Well, under the sun, bummer. Sorry, you didn't get hit, but your neighbor got hit. It could have been reversed, but it wasn't. Um, take a look next. Right? <clears throat> I love this about modern farming. The most used weather app for farmers, this is what they even acknowledge about their weather app. I think this is interesting. They say, farming is an occupation that has mother nature in charge and growers doing their best at good predictions. So even with a weather app, farming can get really dicey, but let us try to help you. So under the sun, it is kind of the luck of the draw of how things are going to happen. Let me show you my favorite cartoon. I'm so glad I could find this online. It's Ziggy, right? Under the sun, you get Ziggy uh, sitting there with his arm around his dog. And he goes, it's you and me against the world. And then he says, personally, I think we're going to get creamed. <laughs> right? Hey, life is hard under the world because it's all the luck of the draw. Now, we might think, yeah, but we're so sophisticated today. We've kind of taken chance out of things. Not true. Watch this really interesting commercial, but consider it from a below-the-sun perspective. Let's watch this. History is filled with almosts, with those who almost adventured, who almost achieved, but ultimately... For them, it proved to be too much. Then there are others, the ones who embrace the moment and commit. And in these moments of truth, these men and women, these mere mortals, just like you and me, as they peer over the edge, 
they calm their minds and steal their nerves with four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. <laughs> Crypto <laughs> currency. But you steeled your nerves. You took that step. You went all in. <laughs> got obliterated. Take a look at what we now call the crypto crash. The crypto crash has reinforced the perception of critics that markets for the digital currency used primarily as an investment vehicle, as it is not widely accepted as payment for goods and services, are little more than global casinos operating with virtually no rules or accountability. Now listen, if you're into crypto, I was a former theater major. I could be completely wrong on this. But your bravery doesn't ensure anything. For every rock band that made it, there's a thousand that didn't. For every one person who took a huge risk and it works and we applauded them, you need to read the history of aviation of everybody who failed before we got to the Wright brothers. So if it's going to be you against the world, I'm betting on the world. That's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Under the sun, life is crazy. Okay, next slide. But he doesn't leave us there, right? He acknowledges life under the sun, but then he gives us some knowledge that we can apply as we're trying to work out this life under the sun. Next. So he says this in 11 verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So diversify. Diversify. Don't just do one crop, because you don't know ultimately what weather pattern is best going to serve different crops. Diversify. Then he offers a really interesting one next. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So go back to these studies on happiness. They all basically say the same thing. I read another book on happiness by an MIT philosopher called um, Midlife, A Philosophical Perspective. And he said, listen, there are two ways to approach time. One is what we call telic. Telic is I'm walking to the store because we're out of milk. You're going to a place with a particular purpose. I need milk. He said, that's telic. Ah, telic is you just enjoy a walk. You don't even know where you're going. You're just taking a walk because walks are good for you and enjoyable. Most of us as Americans, myself included, it's always autelic. I've got a massive to-do list and I'm checking things off my to-do list as fast as I can check them off because I have another to-do list. He says in that book, you are going to have a midlife crisis because that to-do list never goes away and you'll never fully complete it. You need to enjoy the very simple things of life. So as an author, if I just view getting the book done and is there a deadline with a publisher? A hundred percent. But if that's all I do is I got to get this done, got to get this done, got to get this done. He says, and again, he's a very accomplished author. He said, that's what my midlife crisis was. My midlife crisis was I was always knocking off books and never enjoying the writing process. Right? So we have to enjoy autelic. 
which is you just go out and get a cup of coffee and you just sit, right? If all of us are motivated by the end means, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, no, 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 rejoice in just a good day because the hard days are coming, I promise you. So we need to learn to just sit and enjoy the moment. By the way, Sabbath rest is what God said it should be. Sabbath rest is you don't do any telic work. You just enjoy the day. So people who write about Sabbath say, go for a walk. Go have a picnic. But don't make it something specific that has to be done. Just enjoy the day and that God has been good for you. Okay, next. Uh, this, we, we lost a giant, Tim Keller. We lost uh, a man that I deeply respected. I love how he communicated with non-Christians. I love his attitude he had towards fellow believers. Well, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He was given a death sentence. Him and his wife wrote an amazing essay for the Wall Street Journal when they learned that, in fact, he was dying unless God intervened. He said exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. This is what he said. A short green Jedi master's words applied to me perfectly. All his life, he has looked away to the future, the horizon, never his mind on where he was. Kathy and I should have known better. We did know better. God doesn't promise you tomorrow. That's the book of James. So we enjoy today. We enjoy it. And that's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Hey, dark times are coming. You can't get away from that. Enjoy the moment when the times are good. Next. Okay, then he says, hey, let's adopt an above the sun. This is where he wants you to go. So in chapter 11, this is a couple above the sun moments. First, so you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So back then, childbirth was a complete mystery. The birth process was very foreign to understand what was going on. And that was really scary to people back then giving childbirth. So he sprinkles in this above the sun. But what if there was a God who knows the mysteries of childbirth? What if there was a God who understands how a fetus is formed and what's happening in a woman as she's giving birth. Wouldn't you rather like that world? And he just sticks it in to goad you to think about above the sun. Then he says this, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So above the sun is this. Listen, you're in life, but just know at the end of it all, you're going to stand before your creator. He is both going to judge what you did and affirm what you did. He's going to do both. He's going to affirm the good things you did walking in the ways of God. And he'll also judge the ways that you went to error. Boy, that just gives you a way to think about your life. I once walked into my class. I said, I've made a decision. I've really, I'm really busy. I'm working on a bunch of stuff. I don't have time to grade all your stuff. So for this class, you all have A's. You all have A's. There's nothing you can do to lose your A. You all have A's. Let's just have some great conversations. And my students were like, wait a minute, you're not grading anything? No, you have an A. You take your A. I said, why, why, why aren't you happier? 
And one student said, well, I don't know, it kind of takes away a little bit of motivation, to be honest with you. Why? You got your A. Yeah, but there's something about working for the A. I said, so you're rejecting my A? And they're like, well, I, I, I don't think it's a great way to motivate us. Then I said to my students, why do you think there's the judgment seat of Christ for believers? Like, why do you think Jesus would do this? Your salvation is secured. His love for you is not going anywhere. anywhere. Why then would he judge believers? Maybe because he wants to motivate you to live life in a fallen world that both the affirmation of your creator and the judgment of your creator will motivate you to live a godly life. And they were like, wow, okay. Do we get an A? No, you don't get an A. That was a rhetorical tool. One student said, I have another word for it. I said, what? Lying. I was like, oh, yeah, that's probably pretty good. All right, so with all that in place... Now we're ready for our experiment. And here's the experiment I give to my students. Remember Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, a lot of these students became Christians at a very young age. Listen, it's a great blessing to accept Christ at a young age, but it really feeds into the valleys and the peaks, right? Because they take it for granted. I became a Christian in a non-Christian home. We never went to church. When I accepted Jesus at age 13, it was radical, radical way to look at life, right? But I still go through the valleys. But people, now my kids, my three Mielhoff boys, right? God is like lunch in the Mielhoff household. Are we going to church? Of course we're going to church. Of course we pray. Of course we read the Bible. Because you're in the Mielhoff household and we're a Christian home. And they're like, well, then everybody's a Christian. No, not everybody's a Christian. And don't take God for granted. But it's been the background music of their entire lives. So when you're down in the trough, when you feel like God is like vanilla, this is the thought experiment I give my students. Okay? For one week, you're going to do this. First thing you're going to do to start every day is you are going to live under the sun. You're going to fully embrace it during the day, right? You are going to live in a world in which there is no God. No need to pray. There's nothing to pray to, right? Just like me saying to the atheist YouTuber, let's play out your position fully, right? So we can understand it, is you are going to live your life as though there is no God at all. Now, let's just do that with the issue of health, right? The older I get, the more health becomes an issue. Noreen left to go to Florida to care for her mother, right? Because she's having health issues. My mom's having health issues, right? Um, So if you're living under the sun, what do you do when you encounter bad health, right? One of my dear friends, a colleague at Biola University, was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. If it would have been stage four it would have basically been a death sentence unless God intervened. I I have never walked with a person through the cancer journey and to watch what radiation did to his body, what chemotherapy did to his body is staggering. And to this day, he is cancer-free. He still has neuropathy in his feet. Uh, His stomach is a mess. He, he, He has to be very careful what he eats. But, but let's say we're under the sun. What do, you, what do you say to your friend when they come back and say, I have stage three colon cancer? Well, 
I came across these two quotes that to me represent under the sun. Michael uh, Palin is one of the founding members of Monty Python, the great British comedy group. His wife had a health scare at 80, and this is what he wrote. Uh, But we're both getting on a bit. The body is declining. She's going to be 80 in October. I'm going to be 80 at the beginning of the year. We live life with our fingers crossed. Welcome to Under the Sun. My friend calls me. By the way, they gathered a bunch of us in the backyard of their home when they announced they had stage 3 cancer. Um, What do you say under the sun? Dude, I'm hoping for the best, man. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the best. Uh, Jamie Foxx. We, we don't know much about what Jamie Foxx is going through. His family has been very protective of his privacy. We just know that Jamie uh, Foxx's health has declined, and it's a very serious issue. A friend of his went and visited Jamie Foxx and gave a perfect under-the-sun response. This is what he said. My love synergy goes out to him. Right? So what do I say to my friend who has stage 3 colon cancer? Hey, my synergy goes out to you. I just want you to know Noreen and I are sending really good thoughts towards you. Hang in there. Right? That's life under the sun. Now you do that all day. Your inclination is to pray when you drive for work for a safe trip. No need to pray that. It's a luck of the draw. And there are, by the way, let me just say this about California. I love California. You all are crazy drivers. Like if it rains, it's like the zombie apocalypse happened. And it's really hard being Brea's most recognized best driver. Let me just say that is a burden I carry. Everybody annoys me. Everybody. So don't pray for traveling mercies. And let's just pray you don't get hit by somebody who's texting as they're driving. Just keep your fingers crossed. There's no reason to pray. There's nobody to pray to. Okay? You do that all day. Then at night, you shift perspectives and now you live above the sun. But let me just say this very quickly, what I say to my students. Do people above the sun still get cancer? A hundred percent. My friend who's a colleague at Biola, one of the godliest couples I know, they speak nationally on marriage. Uh, I've had really good friends who have died from cancer and they're Christians. So just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you weren't affected by the pandemic, doesn't mean you're not experiencing financial hardship, doesn't mean that you won't get cancer. But above the sun is an attitude check, right? So when when the evening comes, you get to live above the sun and maybe things you took for granted, you're not taken for granted anymore. So here's what I would say to my friend who has stage three cancer as a Christian to a Christian. Here's what I'd say to him. One, I'd say, Chris, we are all God's handiwork. So God has not given up on you. Uh, I I do not believe personally God inflicts people with cancer. I believe that is part of a fallen world. I think God deeply grieves when people get cancer, both Christians and non-Christians. So I would say to my friend Chris, Chris, even with cancer eating away at your body, you are God's handiwork. God is working on you right now. Second, uh, second verse, Romans. We know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, right? God's best thing he does is he redeems things. So this couple, this dear couple, they've gone public. They have a podcast. I interviewed them on their podcast where they went public with their journey with cancer. Um, 
God has redeemed it in a sense. They now travel all across the country talking about God's faithfulness and what does it mean to be in a time of dryness and dullness and and tragedy. Um, And guess what? The cancer might come back. C.S. Lewis, his wife, he believed his wife was cured of cancer. And she went into remission. They went on hikes together. And then the cancer came back with a vengeance and she died very quickly. Some people have said Lewis never defended his faith publicly after that, after his wife died. So yeah, it can come back for Chris. But even if it comes back, he'll redeem it. And ultimately in heaven, he'll redeem all things. But you're still his handiwork. And then here's the last thing above the sun when you don't know what to say to a person. I have no idea what to say to you because what you're going through right now, I don't know how I'd react. A good friend of mine, his son was two weeks away from being released from Iraq and he was going on staff with Camp Crusade for Christ and his Humvee hit a landmine. Uh, They had to have a closed casket. This is a believer. This is a man who discipled me in college. What do you say when there's nothing to say above the sun? This is what you say. For God has said, I will never, never fail you or forsake you. What did Paul say in Romans? Listen, I'm telling you right now, Church of Rome, as Nero's persecution is heading your way, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. And then he mentions nine possibilities, the sword being one of them. He said, but I promise you, you will be more than conquerors, even though you're like sheep being led to slaughter. That is above the sun perspective. So the next day you repeat it. I wake up in the morning. I'm like, okay, what if there was no God? No reason to pray for my test. No reason to pray that the cancer won't be there. There's, it's a luck of the draw, whether the cancer is there or not. Right? And you live above the sun. Then at night you go back, I'm sorry, below the sun. Then you go back to above the sun and you do pray for things, understanding God's not a genie and he doesn't answer every one of your prayers, right? We still live with the tension, but the context has really changed. Make sense? Let me go back to Tim Keller to end this time. So I would do that for a week. I'd do it for a week. For me, it makes me, just like my wife's been away for five days, it makes me reappreciate God's because God was absent during the day, not really absent, but in my perspective, I'm pretending he's not there. Then when I go back to him at night, it's like my wife walking through that door, having been away for five days. Tim Keller said this at the end of that essay when he was talking about diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I'll never forget when he said this. But as death, the last enemy became real to my heart, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real as my cancer diagnosis, or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Then he quotes Jonathan Edwards and has a beautiful metaphor about the taste of honey. This is what he says. It's one thing to believe with certainty that honey is sweet, perhaps through the universal testimony of trusted people, but it is another to actually taste the sweetness of honey. The sense of the honey's sweetness on the tongue brings a fuller knowledge of honey than any rational deduction. Men and women, let me say this. Some of us 
We believe honey is sweet because we know people who have told us honey is sweet. And we trust them. But I've never tasted honey. Some of us need to come to the place where we actually taste the honey. Now, I would argue that's going to happen during hard times. I think hard times is what drives us to God to say, God, I can't live off my parents' faith anymore. I can't live off the faith of people I go to church with. I need my own faith. I need to taste the honey. And I think Ecclesiastes drives us to the need to where I need to own this above the sun experience. So this one week thing, it can be done any way you want. Uh, But what I do is for one week, I live without God during the day. And at night, it feels so sweet to pray because I've denied myself prayer throughout the day. And then do this for an entire week. It, It has had an effect on me during those dry moments. Now, if Harvard is right, the number one way we're going to get past these dry moments is we're going to do it as a community. You were never meant to go through the dry moments by yourself. Remember what Harvard said. It is being in community that will help you the most. And remember what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, a cord of three strands is strong. So we need each other as we go through these hard times. So let me pray for us. If you want to do this exercise, I I got asked a lot of questions about it after, and I'll be glad to answer them. There's no wrong way to do the, the experiment. Do it for a day. Do it for two days. We are in a world that is often senseless, confusing, and being above the sun doesn't mean that world goes away, but we now put it in a different context. We now realize that God is going through us and that every good gift is from him. Let let me pray for us. Father, we know we live in a world that's in rebellion. And we see, we see the fruits of that rebellion everywhere. And it's discouraging. Father, we live in a world where Christians and non-Christians have financial struggles. We live in a world where violence affects all of us. We live in a world of war. We live in a world of cancer diagnoses and coming out of the pandemic humbled all of us that maybe the world's not as strong as we thought and that one pandemic could unravel us. So, Father, in these moments, thank you that you goad us into thinking above the sun. That we go through this world with a God who is in the process of redeeming the world, who sent his son to die for each one of us. No doubt what the writer said is true. There are dark days on the horizon. But let us savor today and to remember the good that is happening today, even in the midst of pain and in the midst of chasing the wind. Father, I thank you so much that you promised never to forsake us, never to leave us, and that ultimately nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Today, we pause to say thank you, and in the worship songs we're about to sing, we offer that as a way of saying thank you. Lord, thank you that we get to be part of a community and go through these hard times together. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're thankful that we get to pray to him, and he promises that he listens. In his name, 
Amen.